0: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Hey guys, it's the MC Lars podcast with your host DJ Jerry. No, <laughs> just playing. MC Lars, what's up, y'all? It is New Year's Eve, 2018, and I want to thank you all for subscribing to my podcast this year. It's been great. I've had a lot of fun, and uh, this is episode freaking 18 with George Watsky. George Watsky uh, came into like viral prominence in. January of 2011, I think, he did a YouTube video, Pale Kid Raps Fast, right? Where he rapped fast over the Buster Rhymes beat. and But it was funny, it was quick, it was good. It was like, he definitely could tell the kid had skills. He retitled it Watsky Raps Fast because there was, a, for some reason, whatever. And then years went by. He put out great records. He made great videos. He put out a book, which is called How to Ruin Everything, which is really funny and dope. And somehow through all this, like early on, on Twitter, someone tagged us both and he tweeted me that he was a fan of mine. And we both were from the Bay. Uh, we connected in real life at Warp Tour when Warp Tour came to Mountain View. But before that, we started emailing about doing a song together, which many of you have heard. It's called Never Afraid. And in my bio on the website, I wrote that, how my mom was a librarian, and I think George saw that, and he had an idea that we could do a song about having librarian moms, giving him a shout out. So that song became Never Afraid, and the video is super dope, and it's one of my favorite tracks I've ever worked on. So Watsky has done lots of awesome stuff. If you've seen what's called Blind Spotting, he has a cameo in that movie, and he's about to go on tour. What is his website? It's georgewatsky.com and he'll be on tour this spring and and winter. So check it out because his show is awesome. It starts January 31st in Nashville, com. So that's what's up. He's got a new EP coming out, and uh, he's doing a lot of awesome stuff. This is my interview with him. We've We've only hung out like a handful of times, but I feel like we kind of – Get each other and have a similar passion and uh, I I admire what this dude does so check it out this is my interview with George Watsky oh before we get into that shout out to everyone who's been supporting on Patreon I've been putting I just put out the Narnia EP and uh, we got some new supporters this week shout out to John Daniel and Kenneth thank you homies and of course I want to shout out some of the older supporters shout out to Matt James and Roger so that's what's up happy new year everyone Uh, enjoy my interview And uh, thank you again for your support. I'll talk to you guys after with some final thoughts. Peace. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here with George
1: Watsky. What's going on, Lars? Thank you for having time to meet up. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for crossing town, coming to uh, to the east side.
0: You know, LA, it's like you get used to the geography of it. It becomes like this trade-off of where your intentions are, Hmm. right? Like if you have time to meet with someone or to do a studio project, and if you're willing to go from Venice to Silver Lake, That means it's important. Yeah. But like Venice to Culver City means, well, I kind of like this mastering guy. He's in my budget, you know?
1: Right, right. Yeah. East side, west side is definitely a divide.
0: When you're down here, do you meet a lot of like Bay Area transplants?
1: Yeah, but it's hard to say how much that's because I'm putting myself in a position either because I know a lot of people in my Bay Area circle already or because I'm doing the type of things like poetry readings that bay area types are likely to show up at i see a lot of bay people and i think that the east side like silver lake where i've ended up bay people gravitate towards it because it's got a density and like a hilliness that is similar to the bay yeah that's interesting um how can you like can you tell if someone's from the bay area before they even talk no at this point it's hard to tell how much i've Maintained my bayness. I, I hope a lot, but at the same time, I've also been here for like eight years now, so it's hard to tell. Also, Hella has been so co-opted nationally that like sometimes people say Hella, or they'll be playing like like a DJ spinning Mac Dre to a party, and I'll be like, "Oh shit, you're from the Bay," and they'll be like, "No, I'm just playing Mac Dre." I'm just a fan. Yeah, Bay Area culture has has seeped everywhere. Do you hear Mani? No, I don't hear Manny except for seeing Manny on um, my Twitter feed from people that I know from the Bay. <laughs> yeah. Do you ever
0: feel like you will end up back there in San Francisco?
1: I could. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the few places I I could see myself settling down. I've got older parents, and uh, as they get older, I could see myself definitely trying to, like, you know, make sure they're well taken care of. They still live in San Francisco, so I don't know. There's, there's a lot. In L.A. for me, my friend group is here. A lot of my collaborators are here. But more and more now, like, there were a few years where most of my friends weren't in the Bay. And now people are starting to kind of settle back down there, at least some pockets of friends. Starting to, like, get married and yeah. put their roots down. So it's do you feel inspired down here? Yeah, yeah, I do. But it's not, like, L.A. that inspires me. It's the people that I'm around. And I have a really cool Group of creative friends and um, dating someone now who's really inspiring to me. And just, I feel like I'm surrounded by curious people, and that makes me curious.
0: You had curious parents, didn't you? Or you do have curious parents, I mean.
1: Yeah, I do. I, I mean, in certain ways, and I have really smart parents. Um, they're both readers, they both, like, we have librarian mothers in common, I know. Um, <laughs> so there were just books everywhere. My dad was constantly reading to me, and he's, um, he's just very fascinated with history and literature, and so yeah, there was there was always like books, book book discovery, reading going on in my house. Your dad's a psychologist, is that right? He's a psychologist by day and a poet by night. Yeah, he's a Jungian analyst specifically, so he's a, a depth psychologist. Which uh, for those of you who are listening, who don't know the difference between a depth psychologist and a CB, a cognitive behavioralist, those are the two sort of major schools of therapy thought uh, right now. CBs make up the majority of therapists that people have, but the depth psychologists are like the Freudians and the Jungians, uh, and my dad is a Jungian, do a lot of dream analysis, a lot of um, work on the intersection between the subconscious and creativity and early childhood trauma and that stuff. So it's it's pretty fascinating stuff and I think has made him a, a really good listener too.
0: Do you feel like you were always super supported when you wanted to create art and poetry? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh,
1: yeah definitely. My dad calls it the family business. <laughs> uh, so he's really proud. And um, I think at first my parents had that worry of, you know, no, no parent wants to see their kids set up for, for disappointment and to set themselves up to give me an unrealistic expectation about what's possible because it obviously is super competitive. And at that point, when I was growing up, the sort of vast opportunity created by the internet for this cast of middle class um, artists was was only starting to be a thing. And so I think that it was even it felt even less attainable at that point than it does now. Where you know I, I really believe at this point. The internet has created a lot of opportunity for someone who's willing to work hard. Whereas in the past, I think it did to have a career as an artist may have taken more of that combination of hard work plus just right place, right time when the gatekeepers say, "Okay, you know, we're gonna let you in." And um, so I, I think they were worried at first that maybe I wouldn't be able to support myself. But once they started seeing that um, I was paying rent and I graduated college, had been out for a few years, and I wasn't coming back you know, to, to need support. They were fully on board.
0: The magic of the internet.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Best of times, worst of times. It's, (laughs) it's, uh, it's really for everything that's horrible about the internet. It's the democratization of, of information has done so many amazing things for just the flow of information for artists. Um, you know, it's, it's totally fascinating.
0: You talked about the gatekeepers in uh, media. And it's interesting because you and I both came up, like I'm a few years older than you, but we both came up in the Bay as like fans of the indie rap stuff. Mm And, um, you know, like fans of company flow and Sage Francis. And you talked to Spose about you, when you did your first record, you sent CDs to the labels, like to the PO boxes. Yeah. And, um, I always felt starting out being kind of a weird, quirky rapper. People weren't trying to, necessarily there wasn't it wasn't disrespectful but it was people weren't didn't quite understand me and i got my break going you know i I studied abroad in oxford as a as a sophomore and it was the british people who kind of understood me and i feel like nowadays with hip-hop you know it's not the people who run the labels and the older mcs who decide who's next that that helps for sure but it's liberating in a way and i was wondering if you could talk about that like what kind of like the indie rap you listened to and like how you saw yourself in that world when you first started sending those CDs to labels and stuff?
1: In my mind, I just wanted approval from or a co-sign from the people who I loved. I figured, you know, these are are the people that I admire who are building their careers in ways that I admire, that are doing work that I think is important and is honest. And, you know, like I want to be a part of this family. I, I think I sent my record to... Uh, I want to say Strange Famous, Quantum, Rhyme Sayers, you know, the the indie hip-hop juggernauts, the ones that were, like, really doing respected work, Um, and that's not a tactic I would necessarily recommend to people anymore, like, so much self-released stuff. This was 2009, so YouTube had been around for four years, but it hadn't been breaking like new acts really yet. So it was kind of the cusp of that changing. Um, and yeah, thing, things have changed. A lot of those artists are are still around. I mean, you're playing with living legends tonight, which is amazing. Um, and what Rhyme Sayers has done in Minneapolis is still like, in my opinion, the gold standard of indie hip hop in terms of like putting your roots down in a city, making that city yours, and then using that as a launching point for um. Uh, a national career and and lifting that region up. Um, so I still think there's a lot to learn. I mean, from what Tech Nine has done in Kansas City, too. I think there's relevant parts of the conversation for Macklemore in Seattle, although his trajectory is is different and he kind of was breaking hugely nationally at the same time. And and it was also like changing the rules about how big an indie release could be when the heist came out and I think 2013, 2014, maybe 13. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess the main thing for me is the rules are always changing. The The rules are there to be broken. It's just, you know, however you can get your music out to the world if you're doing it in a way that you feel proud of, you know, just be creative and be nimble. Do you make sure
0: every day you write like consistently? Like, do you make it be like, okay, no phone calls this time. I'm going to be working on poetry or lyrics.
1: If I'm in a crunch time for a project, yeah. Usually for albums, that's like the last two weeks Mm -hmm. of really being in studio sessions. But I do work very hard. I mean, I I think my time is sort of split between writing the, the next project and then promoting the previous project. So trying to divide my time, trying to make sure promotion doesn't take up too much of my time so that, you know, we actually are doing the thing that we're supposedly are, you know, being right. creators instead of just being marketers for our own shit. Um, so I think part of it for me the last few years has been making sure that I'm surrounded by enough talented people who are down to do some of, to wear some of the hats that it might not be productive for me to spend all my days like transcoding footage or um you know, all those, those indie hustler things that you got to do at the beginning. And then
0: learning how it changes every year too. Like,
1: do you, so you have a team, do you, do you feel
0: like you've had the same team since the beginning of management Um, and stuff?
1: I haven't had the same manager since the beginning. I changed management recently. I was at a company called Steel Wool that I helped to found. And, um, just was, uh, a huge burden of work on my manager, and he was doing uh, running the company basically and managing me. And so now I'm at a place called Blood Company that is mostly notable in the past for have big electronic artists, but they have a pretty diverse roster. And um, my manager now, Jeff O'Neill, is super cool, like very talented, very savvy with the internet. So it's been uh, really, really great so far. In terms of my band, that's been very consistent over the years. However, my drummer, Chukudi, the Welcome to the Family tour was his last tour with me. So Mm. um, we had a big kind of like tearful goodbye at the Pomona show in the last one. It was something that we knew was going to happen for a while. And he's been a backbone of my band, probably the most consistent member since the Nothing Like the First Time tour in 2012. But at this point, I have a very consistent core group of people that I work with, but Every tour, every project is like, I'll reach out to people and ask if they want to do it. And people might take one, say, hey, I'll catch you on the European run. I'll do the next one. And I usually have subs that I can reach out to, like a second call for a bass player, keyboard player. So I keep the same core, but I don't want anyone to think that like, you know, they're beholden to working in my world if it's not making sense for what they're doing.
0: How do you strike that delicate balance between friend and collaborator and boss? Like, could you have, what, seven people out with you typically? Yeah.
1: It's really important to me to, like, not act like a boss Uh and also, like, to create the environment where, like, people can talk shit to me and it's fine. We can talk shit to each other, you know, like, you don't have to walk on pins and needles and, like protect my feelings if you're my friend you can talk to me like a friend and and that's the relationship that i want like nobody is going to get fired for having friction with me uh as long as they're being upstanding citizen you know treating Mm -hmm. people right like respecting the rules of the road respecting our audience like they have a a job with me for life and they're going to be my first call so i think like knowing that nobody's on the chopping block unless you like do something that's just fundamentally not okay which doesn't include you know slighting me but i I think that's important like trying to create a sense of democracy like if there's an important personnel decision i'm bringing someone new in i talk to the band first because it's going to affect their lives too if we're bringing a new member in so it's it's a tough balance to strike i'm not not always sure i'm doing it right Mm. but i do try to like always keep my pulse on how the other people around me are feeling and yeah, it's, it it is tough. It's something you learn over the years.
0: Your cousin plays keys with you, right? Yeah. So you're, they're literally, he's literally your family.
1: Yeah. 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 And you know, like I think, I think the way to look at it is like you're, I'm not really your boss. This is like a, an an independent contractor for hire thing and like, you know, I'm hiring you on this project and maybe you'll be hiring me on the next one. Mm. Like, I don't, I don't own you. Like I'm not in a hierarchy above you. I just happen to be giving you work on this project and, you know, keep it moving. I think as long as both people go in knowing that, that it doesn't have to be weird.
0: What was what was it like being a San Francisco kid studying at Emerson? Was that a culture shock?
1: Uh, I don't know. Like I had been to the East Coast a bunch because my grandma's from Manhattan and I love the cold. Yeah. So I feel like I was pretty ready for it. I guess in a way there, I don't know, it, it didn't feel that new for me. It, it was exciting. I was stoked to be in college and I'm generally like pretty adventurous with new experiences. Boston has, I think, some baked in racism that's probably a little bit deeper under the surface of the bay than it is in Boston. Boston has like uh, this like blue state collegiate wokeness, but also has some some ugly long-term racism and is very segregated. Uh, being a white college student, I don't think I was really subjected to it in any way, but it was something that I I noticed and made me uncomfortable at certain times out there. Um, friends who were like afraid to ride certain subway lines and go through n- neighborhoods, and so that tension was, was bigger. Um, and just seeing how from block to block, you know, you'd have one block in Jamaica Plain or Dorchester that was like, this is this is like the strongly Cape Verdean neighborhood. And then a couple blocks over from that, you had another like sort of micro community that I, I guess you see more stuff like that in New York and Boston than in the Bay where things have gotten a little more homogenized, even though you do have gentrification and segregation too.
0: Did you ever imagine an alternate reality where you would have stayed in Boston?
1: I don't think so. No, yeah. Boston was like a college city for me for sure. Yeah, um, But I love Boston and, and I have respect for it. Even You talk to like Boston natives about the art scene in Boston and a lot of them have a love-hate relationship with the city too. Um, a feeling that historically Boston has had a tendency to kind of eat its young and to not support up-and-coming artists. That like there there is a bit of... This like self-destructive regionalism where people can can kind of like, you know, have that like crab in a bucket mentality. Someone's getting too big and, it, and it's not a city that always supports its up and comers, unfortunately, because there have been great talents in Boston over the years. Um, but, it, but it has been hard for them to break out onto a national stage.
0: Do you think the Bay does have that kind of camaraderie and support?
1: Yes and no. I mean, the hyphy movement was probably a high watermark, and now I think maybe we're at another high watermark too, with like Kalani and G.E.Z. Um, I am Sue. There, there is kind of a resurgence right now in Bay Area artists. So, but it does feel like there have been long periods of time where not that many artists were co- were coming out of the Bay nationally, which was always so weird because of how much talent there is, and it was like yeah. you had you had like E Forty had like one big national radio hit in a period of like seven years or something. And other than that, it's like, you go back to like MC hammer and you know, like a a little handful of other people. You're
0: a fan of the beat generation, right? We talked about that.
1: Yeah, I, I am. I wouldn't say like, I know I have an encyclopedic knowledge of the beats, but I had an appreciation for like going to poetry readings in North beach and did, did some like readings with, Lawrence Ferlinghetti and those, like, surviving people uh, when I was doing the Teen Poetry Slam thing out there.
0: I always felt, the reason I bring that up is I always felt like that community, um, even though, you know, there are elements of it that were, like, problematic about the beats, of course, like, there was this kind of, uh, this camaraderie that I always found with Bay Area, the Bay Area hip-hop scene. And then in my career, connecting with, like, some of the nerdcore guys, like, Frontalot, he's from the Bay, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like... Uh, like meeting you and getting to know you and stuff like it's I I, the reason I brought that up is because it seems like I've always found there is that kind of fellowship in Mm, the bay even mm. if it's not like a commercial
2: sure right I guess I I have to
1: have a caveat of I think the conversation that I was um having was more about like mainstream artists coming out of the bay but in the underground scene a hundred percent and Yeah. I mean, Quantum, I think maybe started in Sacramento or Davis or something, um, but is I consider that like a NorCal Bay thing. Um, Living Legends, um, the poetry scene. I mean, the spoken word scene in the Bay Area was really strong. And coming up as a teenager, uh, there was crossovers. I and I did a lot of stuff with the poetry scene in the Bay. And The San Francisco youth poetry scene was probably the strongest organization in the country that did spoken word for teenagers and and created this really fertile ground for teenagers to be doing open mics and slams at the opera house, to have like 3,000 people come out to the finals every year and to be empowering these kids to then 10 years later have leadership roles in these same nonprofit organizations doing spoken word literacy work in the bay. I mean that's that was really incredible.
0: I've uh, yeah, and I know you got your start like that was some of your first your first performances you were in mm-hmm. high school, right? When you did that or middle school maybe?
1: No, I was in high school. I yeah. I st- I think I went to my first workshop as a freshman in high school. Uh, I was 15 and then my sophomore year I did the teen poetry slam for the first time and then kept doing it throughout high school, uh, then took a year off after high school and worked full time at that nonprofit you speaks before I went off to college. It took a gap year and worked mm-hmm. there doing like school visits, doing poetry workshops and performances.
0: That's awesome. So you knew yeah. that that was you going to college was what tools so you could be a better writer and performer. It wasn't like a, you weren't trying to do something other than writing,
1: create, right? I think I always knew that I wanted to be to do a combination of writing and performing and that's what blew my mind about uh, Spoken Word when I first saw it was that I went to see Deaf Poetry Jam as a Broadway show before it went to Broadway. That was when I was a freshman in high school and I went back like three or four times and felt like this art form was at the intersection of all the things that I wanted to do already was involved. Writing, monologuing, wordplay, performance—it was funny. It was serious. It allowed you to make your own rules and was engaging to the crowd. It was like not this this exclusive thing, but was um, very much like an accessible art form, which is something that I've always been interested in. I've had a lot of arguments, like friendly conversations with my dad over the years about like you know populist art versus trying to to write something for specific academic communities. And and I've always really wanted to reach a large audience. Like I see art as a as a conversation, as a communication between you and the person who's listening. And not everyone agrees with that. But what I love about spoken word is that it's always felt like that. It's always felt like a dialogue between the audience and the person on stage. So I got into that. And then college for me was like, okay, how do I how do I like look at these skills that I wanted to have and try and get some support in them. And, um, so yeah, college was writing and performing. I actually, my major was called writing and acting for the screen and stage it was a create your own major. That's cool. Couldn't
0: be more appropriate.
1: Yeah. I- they, they had to jump through a few hoops at Emerson to do that. But, um, ultimately like, yeah, I felt like I got a lot out of college.
0: Have other students taken that major? Or you were the first, you're saying?
1: Well, they just have a program called IDIP, which is an independent studies thing where you can, you basically take two departments at the school and you have to petition the chairs of each department to be able to take classes in the other department. Because Emerson lets you in based on what your specific field of study is. And it can be really hard as a non-major to gain access to the electives that are there for the other majors. So for instance, I came in as an acting major. I had to audition to get into the program, uh, but I wanted to take a lot of the classes that were in the film department, but they don't want non-film students to be able to take those classes because they don't want film students to get placed out of them. Mm. So they make it kind of hard. Um, but, and I had to stay for a couple of summers taking extra prerequisites at Emerson, but, uh, it's a kind of thing where like, if you're, if you're hard-nosed enough about it and the department chairs can tell like you really do have a, a vision for what you want to do, they'll let you in.
0: I know you were a freshman when you were on um, Deaf Poetry Jam, right? hmm And did you feel like just ready to be out?
1: You were performing and touring. Were you like really ready to be done with college? Um, in a way, especially because I took that year off and I felt kind of old. I was like, you know, 20 almost 24 by the time I graduated and I was a little antsy to get out into the world. But I also loved being in college and taking classes and doing performances with my friends and we had a performance troupe together on campus. So I, was, I had a, a bit of a split mentality about it. I was also doing, so when I, I got on Deaf Poetry freshman year, uh, that opportunity led me to the college circuit performing and I spent my last two and a half years of Emerson stacking my classes on Monday and Wednesday and I'd take really long days like 8 hour days of all my classes and then I had this college booking agent and a lot of weekends I would go Thursday Friday Saturday and I would fly out to Iowa or something they would do these things called block bookings and get me a few college gigs that were driving distance to each other so I'd like take my classes Monday Wednesday and then I'd fly from Boston Logan on a Thursday morning out to Minneapolis and then drive to like North Dakota or something, and and then I'd spend three days out in the Midwest and then I'd come back and take my classes again so i I felt like I was already working when I was doing the performance thing when I was in college. It was exhausting though those last couple of years.
0: did you think you'd translate it to music like w- like was that the ultimate hope or was it just a cool way to make some money?
1: um music was always something that I wanted to do, but yeah. i I had a lot of people tell me it wasn't viable um, at that point sort of like you touched on earlier in the conversation, there were only a few um, sort of examples for what a non-traditional rapper could be. And there it wasn't like now where, where the rules are, are blown off of everything. Like you can be whatever you want. And in some ways, the more unique you are, the better it is because the more likely you are to stand out. At that point, it was like because you had, you had to be on a major or one of these like well-respected indies to break through. There weren't an infinite number of um, of ways. It felt like you could be. Th- those rules were probably you know things that people perceived, but were never really there to begin with. But a lot of people were like yo, you you wanna you're gonna be a rapper, haha. Ha. Like yeah, right. What are what are you write about? What do you rap about? Because people's minds were very limited in terms of what they expected from the genre. Um, So I always wanted to be a rapper. I always felt like it was going to happen, but it took a while. I was mostly just like getting my bookings off of spoken word gigs for years. It wasn't until I had that viral video in 2011 that I really, that it started to flip around the other way where I had a bigger audience for my music than for my poetry.
0: Being from the Bay, I feel like there's always this, um, when I go back there, I was there like last week there's this freedom of being optimistic, being loud, being yourself, being over the top, being like, I'm always curious and like asking questions. And when I've gone to other places, I realized that that's kind of an exception. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Like being able to just be like intoxicated with life and people in this world is something that I treasure about being from the Bay. And I think like Mm. for me and my music, you know, it's niche, but it's like, that's what I think has drawn my fans and the people I've worked with to that yeah. kind of spirit, and I see that in you too. And I've always like loved that about how you balance song structure and storytelling with that, whether it's ex- existentialist angst or mm. joy or love. And yeah, I just wonder, like, if thank you. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I just wonder if that that was you feeling that to come up to to get on and
1: break through. Like you had to prove yourself twice as much. I wouldn't say that. I think especially dangerous for a white person to be like, yeah, I had to work twice as hard because I was different because I had so many other things handed to me.
2: Hmm.
1: I never had to worry that, you know, I wasn't going to have a roof over my head or eat or that um, I wouldn't be taken seriously in academic environments because I have so many privileged checkboxes checked off. So... The things that are standing in my way to achieve what I want, I feel like are very small potatoes to the kind of hurdles other people have to jump over. So I I don't really feel like I had to work twice as hard. I guess I just always felt like I, w- I would have a different pathway than other people. And that if you're creative and, and resourceful, you can turn those things into your advantages. I, I've just really always believed in the strength as weakness or the, the weakness as, as strength philosophy. Mm. Uh, there's a Kanye line. Um, everything I'm not makes me everything I am, that it's just so true. You know, your quirks, your, your things that have held you back, those, those are going to be the swords in your sheaths, and, and it's always felt like that for me. So, um, no, I've never really worried about that. Um, I used to drive, my dad used to drive me to school in high school, and he would get really stressed out when cars would pull in front of us on the road. He's, he's a kind of stressed out driver. And my feeling was always like, why, why are you stressed out that there's a car double parked there or that somebody turned in front of us? That's, we're, we're on a public road, you know, like everyone's trying to get somewhere. The only thing that's guaranteed is people are going to get in our way on the way. So it, it, for Mm. that to stress us out and surprise us just feels like, like wasted stress and energy. And I view like life and career the same way. It's like, People are gonna pull out in front of you. You're gonna get cut off. Like a, a, a lane is gonna be closed. And there's just, there's gonna be a way to get where you're going. And I, you know, that, I think that mentality has helped me um, stress out a little bit less the last few years.
0: That's a very good metaphor. I, and I think that like in my career, that's where I've tried to get to the point where I can make the music I want, tour and I want. You know, I, I just got married and like being able to like be in a stable relationship and have all these things that in my 20s, the chaos of the road, Mm -hmm. I was speeding. You know what I'm saying? Like I was cutting people off and like you spoke on the podcast with Spose that this was, I really related to this, that you said that being a touring musician always would give you a reason to, if a relationship wasn't working out, well, sorry, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. And now you said you're dating someone like, I remember remember when we talked a few years ago, you talked about how you had restless feet. Mm. And I really relate to that because i I dated so many different people, and I, I I remember them around my different album cycles, yeah, and yeah, like you you also said something about how what was it you said that we're in this business because we're broken people, right <laughs> and I wonder how you feel about that now, you know
1: i'm try- i well I do remember having that conversation with Spos, and I think the context for that was looking at people who stay on the road for long periods of time, and that becomes a lifestyle and that lifestyle can be a crutch. I, I think there is a pathway to sustainability and that's the one I'm trying to find where, now I don't know if it necessarily means I need to have, own a house or be locked down to one physical place, but I think that it's that that feeling of just being comfortable with where you're at and also still excited for where you're going. Um, yeah, the person that I'm dating right now, I just feel like so relaxed and comfortable around her and feel like there's never any pressure to do anything more than enjoy the present moment. But at the same time, you can still be so excited for possibilities and have that thrill of of always trying to discover something new and do something that you haven't done before. And so that feels really, really exciting for me. Um, yeah, and I don't know what the next few years hold, but I I do still feel this is also something that my dad told me a few years ago when we were talking about this this concept of what age do you picture yourself at regardless of how old you are, and I think the the actual technical phrase that he used was um it was like continuous identity or something, um, and he was talking about how he saw himself as in his thirties, no matter how old he got. And he said, "Maybe this sounds crazy, George, but you know, uh, despite the fact that I'm in my seventies, I still feel like I have these endless possibilities laid out in front of me." And I really related to that. I, I feel that too. I just I feel so energized when I think about all of the different directions that life could take. So. I feel yeah, I'm, you know, always going to be a constant up and down pendulum swing of life, but I'm feeling energized and excited.
0: That idea of infinite possibilities, a few years ago a, a rapper friend of mine, he's a Christian rapper, he explained that that's how he sees the idea of God hmm. or a higher power is that infinite possibilities being that it's not a literal thing but it's that faith that you can do a million things and and the world is like going back to talking about being like having that spirit from the Bay area that I carry with me yeah. that there's always something awesome around the corner. And it's like, remember, I know you're a Calvin and Hobbes fan. The, mm-hmm. the final strip, it's a magical world. Hobbes, oh buddy, let's go exploring. Yeah, Like that is, you know, that is that perspective I relate to. And I think if I've ever, if I ever have lost it, I've, I've regained it. And like, that is kind of the, um, what gives momentum to my creativity?
1: Sure. Well, you can't really know that you have something unless you have the experience of not having it, and and that's something I say at a lot of my shows. It's a, it's a mantra that I feel like I need to constantly remind myself of. But that there's no there's no light without darkness. There's no joy without heartbreak. You know, if you don't have an experience of pain, then you have no context for what joy is, mm. and it's only. You know, it, it's only by holding something up in comparison to what you could be missing that you really know how lucky you are. So uh, I think that's totally true.
0: That, be, that, that gratitude in like unspoken gratitude, like having that is, is really important. And I think that, I don't, I've never seen this in you like watching your videos and, and seeing your shows that you've ever felt jaded or wronged by the music industry. I don't think I, that's something,
1: I, a vibe I don't get. Am I right in that? No, I don't feel wronged. I feel lucky. I mean, I'm, I have a career. I'm making my living doing this. I'm able to support my friends. I mean, yeah. It's like glass half <laughs> empty, glass half full. Like, yeah, sure. Okay. Maybe certain things bounce a different way along the road. And maybe I could be bigger than I am and making more money. And it works the other way around too. That, that mentality of like, oh, I've been fucked. I've been wronged. Like, it works the other way. Like, I, I could so easily not be in this position. I've also made mistakes, you know, that that I got lucky to not have my career ripped out from under me. Like, when I had that stage dive in London in in 2013, like, I could have lost my career there and I would tell you that that wouldn't have been unfair for me to lose it because it was such, a like, a reckless decision uh, and the fact that, like, I'm still... A you know people are still showing up and like that that didn't derail everything that I have going on like it could have and and it wouldn't have been wrong and you know I I just feel extremely fortunate.
0: Um, that woman, is she okay? Right, everything turned out okay.
1: I mean, she broke her arm. I wasn't in a lot of conversation with her. There were actually two people that got injured, one of whom. Uh, had a back problem and I was talking to him for a while and have emailed him over the years and uh, I, it's possible he's still in some chronic pain like, like I don't keep up with them monthly and I don't get the sense they want me to <clears throat> I didn't talk to the woman at all really except for the fact that I I went to trial you know I pled guilty for this in England I lived in London for five months and um she submitted a court statement that she was in a lot of pain. So um, I actually don't know, and uh, it's possible, and it's something that that troubles me to feel like oh, I may I've probably been a net negative on this person's life. That that's something that you know I live with, and it was a broken arm. I don't know how bad it's continued to be over the years, but I do um, think about it and hate the idea that I'm coming into someone's life and having them leave worse for it.
0: You kind of touched on it on your, the album you made after it. You ha, you had a verse about it, right?
1: I had a couple songs. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And yeah, I remember when I when I first met up with you, you were going through all that and it's like but it's awesome how it didn't derail you and how you're you've made it positive and you that you're respectful about it and still think about it. It's
1: yeah. it's it's always going to be complicated. It should be yeah. complicated for the people who listen to me, you know, like I, I'm not a perfect individual who's made all the right choices along the way, and every, you know everyone can weigh that for what it is. Um, I feel like I learned from it, but at the same time, like your your life is uh, is a product of the choices that you make, and uh, you know I respect that, and hopefully we'll just own up to it whenever that happens. It's a lot of responsibility. I think also this um, sort of idea, something I touched on in my Welcome to the Family song, but how there's a, there's this, I wouldn't say pressure, but you're rewarded for sort of lifting yourself up as a hero and creating a hero myth around yourself as an artist, because people, I think, gravitate towards somebody that they want to follow, that has ideals that they believe in, that they can get behind. And there's this very strange interplay between like, yeah, it's great to project good values, but also nobody is really a hero. Like a hero is a construct. Uh, we're complicated individuals. And, you know, where where's that line between being an artist and being like a self-styled cult leader?
0: <laughs> That's a good question. There's that Chuck Klosterman has a great essay about um, Kurt Cobain juxtaposed with David Koresh. And he kind of like makes the point that David Koresh was more sane because he didn't want to, when he was revered as a rock star and a leader mm. he said I deserve this versus like he talks about how when Courtney love bought Alexis, Kurt was like, you need to return it that's mm. not in, val- in line with our values. yeah it's an interesting it's an interesting essay and it's like being a, being a hero is something that's in the eyes of other people, right It's like you can create that that archetypal myth, but ultimately you don't have control over it and it can be taken away if something, Bad happens, or some truth comes out, and so it's a danger. It's dangerous, right? It's like a dangerous. Um, I don't know. I I wouldn't want to be considered a hero
1: to the world. Yeah, It's scary. I mean, that the, honestly, looking at how much scrutiny. I mean, like the the Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson thing. Like, I watch that unfold, and my feeling is like, oh man, I don't. I can't imagine wanting that like that's so much scrutiny it seems like being on an indie level where you have your fans that like what you do but you're not being like harangued by this throng of people Uh, I in a way I feel like it's the ideal spot to be at you know you, Mm. you get to do what you love you get to create your work and have an audience of people who like you for what what you are and you don't need to worry about that like endless noise and and chatter like that to not have your anonymity walking around, um, so yeah, I I feel really grateful. Honestly, this this like middle tier artist level I think is a really attractive one,
0: and a sustainable one, right? And a
1: sustainable one too. Yeah, yeah. like for instance, if you don't if you have a big radio hit. Sometimes the mentality is like, oh well, what's the follow up? And you have this pressure to just be knocking out these these mega hits. But and I look at someone like E Forty or Tech Nine. I never feel like E40 fell off. He's just he's he can't. He's, he's only gotten better. Yeah, he's a legend. You know, like you, if you maintain at this independent level and you keep producing and you keep working hard, I think you have an opportunity to just basically work forever. Have you met E40? No, I follow him on Twitter. But yeah, that's it. That's
0: it. <laughs> I met him once at South by Southwest, and obviously he didn't know who I was, but uh, had my Oakland my ace cap on, and mm-hmm. he and he thought I was tight. He was. I, I got this vibe from him. Shake his hand like I was with my friend Claire, and she's like, "He has such a great energy around him," mm. and I felt that. And, and like that, I think. I mean, on a metaphysical level, that comes from. There is something more to when you step to the mic or when you write down. You are trying tr- trying to channel something bigger, and that's the longevity. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, what what are some things that bigger bigger than music that you have faith in or things you believe in that are like intangible or tangible, mm. you know?
1: Well, I was raised agnostic and I would say that I'm an atheist leaning agnostic, but I don't believe in fate or a grand design to why we're here. But what I do believe in is how much I like being here, <laughs> how, how passionate I am about being alive and how much I believe in beauty and my own perception of beauty and form and the life that I wanna live Includes the possibility that you can create structure and meaning around your own life And if you give it that structure and meaning that you can step into that form and what I mean by that is like I might not believe in the same way a Christian believes that our lives have been planned out but by giving myself a plan that I like and choosing to live in that, it, there there is such a self-fulfilling prophecy to that for manifesting that world. And, and I really believe in creating structure, creating beauty, creating symmetry for yourself and then allowing your life to have that symmetry. And it. it's so gratifying to me to try and have an idea and watch it pay off, you know, like think about a vacation that I would love to take with somebody and, and it seeming crazy and then just going and doing it uh, and finding ways that, you know, my life story intersects with the the person that I'm in love with and and finding meaning and beauty in that and so uh, I think my work is a lot about that just this idea that like I feel like we have no idea why we're here we we have these these strategies to cope with making life seem normal when really in a basic level like nobody has any fucking idea about the the very bare bones of anything and we're all just trying to muddle through it so you know I have a lot of that existentialism in my work. I'm trying to move it from existential angst to maybe more existential wonder and have both those <laughs> things interplay. But I mean, I think that's what it's all about is like, why are we here? What are we doing? How can we give these li- our lives meaning? Those things that, you know, I feel like we should be sc- screaming at people in the street every day, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, we don't understand any of this. We just go about our business like everything's normal. And, and I think that's what I want the core of my work to be about. The uh, the,
0: the mass of men living lives of quiet desperation quote, yeah. right? Like that, yeah, we, we try to put on a face and we speculate on why we're all here t- t- just so we don't go crazy. Yeah. And so we can have like order and stability. Um. Do you, are you optimistic about the future as this world becomes increasingly
1: like crazy? Oh man, that's a good question. I have pessimistic parents. Um uh, the previous relationship that I was in, um I was I had a girlfriend who was incredibly optimistic about technology and that was very inspiring to me and um and I would say my current relationship too, um I'm I'm dating somebody who's a real optimist, and I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that I have both pessimistic and optimistic qualities. Um, Trump troubles me so much. The fact that he could get elected troubles me so much. I don't see the forces that elected Trump dying quietly. I, I see things getting worse before they get better in terms of politics and the, the fact that in the United States we've never actually dealt with the fallout from slavery. And, you know, that it's, it's an intractable problem. It's, and it's something, you know, like the fact that these like xenophobic neocons are rising in prominence all over the world is not a coincidence. It's, it's the fact that like we've made these devil, devil's bargains throughout history and, and built these massive empires off of, um, off of, Basically, like slave labor or close to slave labor, and created this capitalist monster. Like it's not, it's not going to die easy. There's, there's just no solution in my head with that doesn't involve pain and suffering and 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 you know tragedy of some kind. In terms of whether we're going towards like a utopian singularity or uh, painful, painful destruction, I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, you, <laughs> you're, so you're very re- realistic about it, you I just because you don't know. know, right? Yeah, I just
1: don't know. I mean, I, I one one argument that I had with that previous girlfriend that we never really reached a conclusion on was, and she was so excited for 3D printers and how they had the potential to solve world hunger and you, what well, it you can for 3D print food, you know, like we can if we have the chemical building blocks. We can we can put food on every starving person's table in the world. And that seems really reasonable to me and really awesome. And my response that probably, you know, the little parent's voice in the back of my head that raised me is thinking, well, what's stopping one madman from 3D printing a nuclear bomb? If we can put that, mm. that technology in the hands of a single person, uh, then we don't have, like, this safety net of mutually assured destruction to keep people from dropping bombs everywhere. It just takes, you know, the person with the the school shooter mentality suddenly has the power to print an, an atom bomb. Like, that scares me too. So I'm, I'm optimistic, and uh, and then there's the worried side of me for sure too.
0: Yeah, you're tap, tapped into both sides. I feel like that is... And that's kind of the balance that maybe keeps us all neutral because we're like, it's like taking we have this stimulant of the the joy of the future and the depressant of like what could happen. And you've seen, we both have seen like a lot of the world and a lot of the country. And, you know, I wonder if the perspective we have from our fans is we meet people who are excited to meet us who often are like optimistic and they're drawn to like quirky, intelligent music. So we see a a subsection that maybe the world doesn't see of like creative, interesting people. Mm -hmm. But then there's this, there are like people who, maybe listen to us who aren't heroes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like there's this, we see this subsection of the world. Like I found when all the the uh, stuff went down in 2016, that a lot of the n- nerdcore and the fans were, there's a lot of alt-right people in the mix there mm. who were kind of, who saw it as like non-threatening rap music because it's far from its cultural origins. And, and that man, to be honest, George, that was like profoundly troubling. Mm. And, and I kind of, was a little more cautious about what I posted. But I'm not not being political, but I think we've you and I have probably seen a subsection of great and like darkness in, in the people we've met through touring. I don't know. Do you want would you mind speaking on that? Like have you had a similar experience or no?
1: Um yeah, I mean I had a I had a shooting thread at a particular show um and it was seemed very credible and it was by somebody who was a fan of me and i don't want to go into it in too much detail don't want to freak people out too much but it was um, during the 2016 election cycle and it was really dark it was like this person was posting my lyrics and some of my lyrics that songs like talking to myself that i think speak to people who are feeling uh, a lot of disconnection from the world and angst um, and also posting a lot of NRA, MAGA stuff. And I was really outspoken about wanting Hillary to win the election once she was nominated. And so there were a certain element of my fan base that was like, wait, what the fuck? Like, they were very upset. So, yeah, I, I don't know exactly where I was going with that, except to say that I I have seen that too a little bit. I'm also... I've been trying to think about like how much do I believe in adding to the echo chamber because I know the audiences self-select and the more vocal you are, the more likely you are to lose the people who disagree with you, who are maybe the people who you need to reach the most. Mm. Um, but I also think it's really important to lay your cards on the table right now and not be afraid of speaking your mind because that is it's really dangerous, too, that you take too much the other approach and you become bland and inoffensive because you don't want to alienate anybody and then you're not saying anything at all. So it's, it's a difficult line to walk. Um, it's one that I was trying to do a lot when I was playing the Midwest and doing the college circuit because I was often playing for these religious colleges where – Uh, those were the ones that had all the bookings. They're these small liberal arts schools that were either like Baptist or Lutheran. Um, A lot of people who had very conservative views, especially around abortion. And it's like, how do I go in front of this audience that, and and even anti-gay rights too, at that point in like 2007, 2008, when it didn't feel so much like a settled issue amongst young people. And I had to get in front of these audiences that I knew disagreed with me on some fundamental issues and try and, and try and win them over enough to make them listen to what I had to say when it feels like we're in such a binary argumentative system right now. And uh, the, the whole like talking heads yelling at each other on MSNBC and Fox just disgusts me. I I don't like that just news as entertainment system that we've sort of gotten ourselves into.
0: Yeah, and that if you say one thing, there's an implication that you disagree with something else. When really, it's like the truth is gray. Yeah, there's there's a whole like weird permeable membrane, and I feel like art and music and, and poetry has the ability to touch people in a way that what we create now says something about how certain people of a certain world feel about this changing world. That is like very telling for the future. It feels like it's the scrolling credits to a intro to a Star Wars movie, not to like not to belittle it or like to mm-hmm. trivialize it. But I wonder if you feel that in your art and your writing that you have this, you have this platform, you have young people around the world who, who care what you have to say. And like, if the weight of that, that agency is liberating or if it's kind of like stultifying,
1: what do you think? Um, I feel a lot more freedom talking about politics in some ways, politics and, and social issues than I do about talking about my personal life. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that in terms of writing about politics, the thing that I that gives me the most pause is how I'm presenting an issue. For instance, I had a song called Stick to Your Guns on my previous album, and I wasn't afraid about letting people know where I stood on the idea of gun control. That was easy for me, but the way that I structured the song was that you had three different verses, each from a different perspective, and the first perspective is, and if. It's basically revolving around a single unnamed shooting event that's sort of generic enough that it feels like it could be any of the mass shootings that's happened in the last few years. And the first person that you hear from in the first verse is the speaker who's about to, is the, the shooter who's about to commit the act. The second person that you hear from is a news anchor who's commenting on the act that just happened. And the third person is a politician that's eulogizing it like a week later, but not doing anything about it. And i felt like i was really concerned about how people were going to absorb the song especially because i'm i'm choosing to speak from the perspective of a shooter which just even empathizing with somebody like putting yourselves in your shoes is a a choice to make uh you're choosing to humanize somebody who's done something that's that's very inhumane Um, and i worried especially about how people who'd experienced shootings and how uh, and people who have a closer relationship maybe to someone who would passed in a shooting might feel that that was an incredibly disrespectful way to approach that song subject as somebody who hasn't lost someone in a shooting. Hmm. So that's something I thought about a lot. I ultimately obviously decided to put it on my album because I felt like I do what what gives me the right to a perspective on that issue is being an American who lives in this world, uh, you know, and, and that in and of itself is, um, gives me a perspective on the issue. I haven't really heard from anybody who's had that reaction I was afraid of, but I have heard from people who are like, you disagree with me on gun control.
0: I like that song because it's, it's, was a creative way to like spin the perspective to show that there's not one right answer while also conveying your beliefs. And like, it's very, it's very convincing song and it's really like thoughtful. And I thought that was a standout track on your record because you tackled something that uh, it's scary. You know, it's something that's so, lo- so loaded, so to speak. That's like one of the central issues of of, of the world right now. And like, yeah, man, I always, I always, always like to see what you're doing because you always have a good take on things. And you give me optimism as an older rapper who's grown up, like in appreciating your stuff that, yeah. you know, there's good stuff out there. And right I, on. I Thank appreciate you. that, man. Um, George, I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, and with one more question. Sure. And I'm wondering, we, talk, we touched on this earlier about the concept of heroes, right? And I'm wondering, as you've reached your 30s now and like continue to do music and, and have become a hero to a lot of young people, have how you've seen certain heroes from the past, has that changed? Or do you still like revere a lot of your um, people you lucked, looked up to? in a similar way? Because I know you're a huge baseball fan, a mm-hmm. huge music fan, a huge media fan. Like, being having become a hero, how does that make you feel about the people you saw as heroes as a kid?
1: Well, I guess we touched on it earlier, the idea that, like, a hero is a construct. Everybody is a complicated, flawed individual, some more flawed than others. I mean, it's been... I would say that, that nobody who's been felled by the Me Too movement so far has been somebody who was, like, you know, my somebody that I had a poster of on my wall or something growing up, but it it does reinforces this idea that there's so many people that are styled as heroes out there who just, just aren't, you know, who aren't what we think they are. And I guess I'm more jaded than as a kid, uh, also growing up as a baseball fan in what I later found out was the steroid era. Right. You know, I, I think I always knew that Barry Bonds was roided And he wasn't my favorite baseball player growing up. But my favorite baseball player, Matt Williams, was on the Mitchell Report report, and, uh, you know, was a PED user. So that, I think, was a a bit of a a moment, realizing that, seeing what, you know, I mean, I think the most extreme example of something like that in the sports world, maybe Lance Armstrong, just Mm. this, this, like, I mean, and he, and, and he's, an extreme example of that because he really went to great lengths to style himself as a hero. I mean, and participating in his own legacy creation as that, the live strong stuff, and I mean, there's just egregious things where he's going into hospitals, um, talking to kids who have cancer, and using his experience as a cancer survivor to accept these these laurels that are being heaped on him, and then it comes out like, oh, it was just. Everything about the the winning the Tour de France, like that Nike commercial where they say, "What are you on? Oh, I'm on my bike, busting my ass." Oh, right. well, but also a whole bunch of steroids too. <laughs> it's the insane. Stero-
0: the steroids kind of c- caused the cancer, or they were they a- contributed to it. No, Is that- no,
1: I think he he had testicular cancer that was separate from his steroid use. Right. But he was also juicing the entire time he was winning the Tour de France. Okay. Uh, you know, yeah. like over the years, over and over and over again, lying about it, sabotaging teammates who knew about it. George Hinkopee, who was going to come out and, and blow the lid off it. And uh, and he was very ruthless in terms of trying to silence people who knew about his history uh, and in in a completely indefensible ways over and over and over again. So, yeah. <laughs> do you have, Do you have any heroes that like,
0: when I think, some of my heroes, you know, like, I mean... Poe is obviously one of my mm-hmm. heroes because he turned pain into something beautiful. Weird Al is still a huge hero to me because of just his impact and his good morals. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, are, are there are there a few people that stick out to you as like, yes, that have stayed in that pantheon for you? Or I mean, that- it
1: shifts a little bit. I, I yeah. have so much respect for Lin-Manuel Miranda and how he's using his platform from Hamilton to not just pay lip service to social justice, but to like go to Puerto Rico and put a show on there and like... I think that he's made all of these choices in the aftermath of Hamilton blowing up that make it clear that his art is not just about elevating his own legacy, but is actually about changing the world for the better. So he, I, I view him as a hero, even though I didn't know him as a hero in my youth, didn't know him at all when I was a kid, um, but he's somebody that I hugely admire uh, right now. And I think that that a big part of this conversation is the way that it's that the idea of separating the art and the individual has evolved in terms of the way the public sees it over the last decade or so, and I think that the like academic consensus ten years or more ago was that a piece of great art can exist independent from its creator, and that idea has really been challenged, and I think importantly so. Mm. We know more about you know we didn't have Edgar Allan Poe's Twitter account to like to to just pour over and, and obsess over when he was around. Uh, but now we do have those things. And I think that holding artists to a higher standard and realizing that like as much as we can hold people accountable to be consistent with the art they're creating, it, it does matter. In my opinion, it matters. Uh, and there are definitely like Lynn, other people out there who who are doing that too, who I think are taking responsibility for for that scrutiny and embracing it.
0: That's good. That's a very good message. And that's kind of like that, the punk rock idea of like separating the barrier between the, the stage and the audience, we can all lift ourselves in hip hop too, right? the participatory culture element, we can all lift ourselves up and like, we're accountable and being on stage doesn't um, keep doesn't make you separate from or ethereal or mm-hmm. otherworldly, it makes you the work you do do on earth is more relevant than ever. You yeah. Know? So on that note, what this is going to air? So this is going to air on New Year's Eve. What do you have coming up for twenty nineteen? Anything you can share that you
1: have it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm going on tour. Uh, I have this album coming out called Complaint, which is nine songs long. I've been teasing it for a while. Um, yeah, it's a big tour. It starts on January thirtieth in Nashville, and then I. Get to open for for Living Legends and Atmosphere and De La Soul at Red Rocks the next night, which I'm so fucking stoked for. That's awesome. And got a week off after that. We got Anchorage coming up. I, I love playing Alaska, so I'm probably going to spend a week there and maybe make some music and ski for a little bit before the tour really really gets going in full. February 15th in Madison, and then we play the U.S., we play Europe. Uh, all my tickets and everything is on sale at georgewatsky.com, and I got pre-sales for my album up so that's the big stuff I have some other stuff that I'll tell you once the mic's off <laughs> okay cool yeah yeah working hard getting out there
0: well I'm gonna come uh, check you out you'll be in New York obviously right yeah we're playing
1: the PlayStation on I don't know off the top of my head
0: okay uh, GeorgeWasky.com. yeah get those tickets
1: thank you for your time man you're welcome thank you for talking to me
0: I appreciate it On many missions and amazing expeditions Flying through the pages on that magic school bus she Silverstein wrote shotgun, but it was up to us To peel apart the layers and search for the dragons The cats wearing hats, Curious George and Peter Rabbit The newest freshest books, mom always brought them home Then in high school it was Steinbeck Keats and Edgar Allan Poe
2: Don't let the memories fade, we gotta make them last I was still a baby when Grandma Katie passed and passed on her hardcover novels with the Sutherland name plates, our family gospel. Cause I'm not sure if the Lord is above. But I know your mother is alive in the stories you love That you read to us when we were little until we were grown. And I'm gonna pass them on when I got some kids on my own. Kids of my own. Of the monsters in the closet, it would be alright. Up in Tahoe on those summer nights. I was never the of a moaning ghost or of a pile of bones. I was never the Even when the floorboards groaned. Stuart Little give up, no. he always persevered. You came on stage at Warp to remember how they cheered? And unlike Jackie
0: Paper, I'll be back to Hanalee to play you my new demos, cause you're so honest with me. At home you won't put up with that rapper ego crap, cause to you I'm still Andrew, and I'll always treasure that.
2: I'd choose my own adventure, it's taken me so far. Goes riding giant beaches, catching seagulls with these bars. Keep all your nickels and dimes Feed me your riddles and rhymes Read me your wrinkle in time Build me a bridge out to Terabithia Meet me at nine On the mysterious island Right at the scene of the crime Come with Captain Nemo But I'm Nemo Don't leave me behind Staring at the sun out on the K Till we're legally blind Treasony, mutiny on the bounty Just carry me there Out by where the red fern grows And then Bury me there Bury me there
0: the Twits or the Grinch or even Captain Hook I was
2: never afraid Of August, Bones, or Bean No, I was never shook I was never afraid Of the Grendel or a Vickabod crane I was never afraid Even when the tripods came Now suddenly, for the first time If I ever have kids, I'll read them Streg and Nona. Lyle, Lyle, Crocodile, Matilda, and Ramona. I'll never give them the back of my hand. Give them the giver, the river, hatchet, and raggedy Ann. And even as a rat fiend, Mama, you always kept my hats clean, Mama. Even though we have seen trauma, you always had the vaccine, Mama. I was never of getting lost in Narnia because we had a map. Was Oakland Hills sitting on my mama's lap I was never afraid In Jumanji or Avanansi I was never afraid the There's no orc or morlock that haunts me I was never afraid I was never afraid
0: Thank you George, freaking tight. I thought it was appropriate to end with our collaboration. You can bump that on Spotify, check out the YouTube video, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Next week, we got Quelly Chris. Quelly Chris and his wife Jean Grey, who's a veteran rapper, made an album called Everything's Fine, and it was the number 1 album on Bandcamp last year, which I thought was kind of cool. It's a great record. Quelly Chris's solo stuff is awesome. He got to start doing like some production for Danny Brown, and he's an incredible rapper. He's actually on the Dewey Decibel System album I'm dropping with Mega Ran. Uh, he's on the Watchman track. So those of you who pre-ordered the record will have heard his ill verse. He's our guest next week. He came by the spot. We talked about his inspiration. He said some interesting stuff about how poetry and rapping is kind of like writing magic spells, which was kind of tight. So check that out. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you again. Please tell your friends. Please leave a review, a comment, yada, yada, all that flavor. And I'll see y'all next week. And I'll see you next year. Get it? Next year? Because it's... 29. All right. Peace.